0: Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, would you come like a fountain and pour out your spirit into us, into me that I would proclaim the excellencies of our Lord Jesus, our great King, our Savior. Help me to proclaim all that Jesus did and taught. May Christ be exalted in every word, and may every hearer here have a softened heart, May you have cultivated the soil of their hearts that this seed would go deep and dig roots down even deeper and shoot up to, to bring forth abundant fruit. a yield 30, 60, 100 fold. Use this little gathering of people to proclaim your supremacy over all things in Christ. Amen. In the fall of 1992, junior quarterback Ryan Leaf led his high school football team to the Montana State title. It was the greatest moment in his football career up to that point. He was the coolest guy in town. Tall, strong, successful. Kids wanted to be just like him. But not everybody liked him. He rubbed some people the wrong way with his confidence, but he didn't care. He had bigger dreams in mind than this small cowboy town in Montana could handle. So Ryan, when he graduated, was excited to escape the small-minded people of Montana who obviously couldn't see his greatness. He went off to college in Washington State where he became one of the best quarterbacks in the entire country. He led his team there to the national title game, which Washington State hadn't been to in 60 years. Ryan had great things ahead in his future. So great that he wanted him right away. He didn't wait to finish his senior year of college. He entered the 1998 NFL Draft, where he was selected second overall, right behind Hall of Famer Peyton Manning. He signed a four-year, $31 million contract with the San Diego Chargers to play football, quarterback in the NFL. His dream had come true. And that was the end of his football success. Ryan Leaf is known as the biggest bust in NFL history. He had a horrible attitude. He was the best, and he knew it. And he didn't need to practice. He didn't need to fix anything. And anytime there was a failure, he blamed it on his teammates. It was their fault that he was not doing so well. The game just became too much for him and eventually poor play and injuries led him, forced him to retire much sooner than he was ready to. Ryan's post-football career then included many failed endeavors. He attempted a career as a financial advisor. He went back to college to get his degree in humanities. He tried out business development for a travel agency. He even began to write a sports column for his school, former school's newspaper online. Finally, after all of these failed, he returned with his head hanging low to his hometown in Montana, defeated, trying to find his identity. Football had been everything to him, and he failed at that. Now he was nothing. Who was he? Perhaps the people back home wouldn't know, and he could still be somebody there. But shortly after returning home, Ryan was arrested for burglary, for theft, drugs. He was sentenced to seven years in custody, forced to be in treatment and under observation. And today he still remains on probation in his hometown, a man who fell so far from glory. But his hometown knew all along he wasn't really that special. In our text for today, we're going to see Jesus also return to his hometown, He took off. He left that little village to go around the country pursuing great things. Greatness, news of his greatness spread all over the nation. He's doing many mighty works, wonderful things. Who is he? And now he's back home to a not so welcome reception. But unlike that failed quarterback, Jesus hasn't come back to try to assert his dominance over a small pond. He's come to offer them one last chance to join him in his glory, one last chance to embrace something meaningful and lasting. So let's see how the story unfolds in Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. Matthew 13, verses 53 to 58. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This section begins for us a a bit of a transition now away from the kingdom parables. Right out of that discourse section, now we begin a narrative where Jesus is going to slowly begin revealing more and more of his own identity. Matthew structures his whole gospel with these changes from narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse. So we had the Sermon on the Mount. We had the Sending of the Disciples, these big discourse sections. And they're followed by an extended narrative where Jesus puts into practice all that he just taught and proclaimed. And here we are coming out of this discourse of the kingdom parables. What is the kingdom like? What does it represent? What is it all about? How is it coming into this world? And now we're in a narrative again where he's going to show exactly what he just taught. This section is the first step in making plain his kingdom identity. And I want to show you today from this text how Jesus is calling you as well to embrace a kingdom identity in Christ or you will miss out on his blessings. Embrace a kingdom identity in Christ, or miss out on his blessings. There's only six verses here, but somehow I'm going to break it up into three parts, two verses each. The first part, we'll look at Jesus' kingdom identity in verses 53 and 54. We'll look backwards a little bit. What has he been teaching us about the kingdom and his kingship? And then, we'll see the identity conflict. He brings this kingdom identity to his hometown, and there's a bit of a conflict. His identity clashes in this world, and then his identity resolution in 57 and 58. What does he resolve to do moving forward from this point? So let's explore his kingdom identity in 53 and 54. I'll read those again. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them In their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So, the first thing Matthew says is, He just finished teaching these kingdom parables and then moves on to this next scene. So, he wants us to know that what is happening here applies to what just happened, what he just told us, all about the kingdom. He wants us to remember those kingdom parables as we're reading this text. Well, what should we remember? The kingdom parables in chapter 13 have told us that the reason people aren't flocking to him and delighting in his message are because there's something working against him. There are different kind of soils that the seed is being planted in. Satan is snatching away some of the seed. The, shallow, the soil is shallow in some places, so it's not getting root. People just, their hearts aren't ready, or the cares of the world choke it out so it can't grow. And so the world is filled with believers and non-believers, those who are faithful citizens of the kingdom and those who are rebellious to the kingdom. But we're not going to start a revolution, he says, by trying to weed out all those infidels, all those unbelievers. We're not going to go out and fight them in order to get rid of them. There's a lot of injustice in the world, but someday he is going to bring justice. He will take care of the unbelievers. Until then, slowly carefully, persistently, he is going to fill the entire earth with his faithful people. You can recognize them by their fruit. They're people who are going to be loving him, bearing hundredfold fruit, sharing him, and they're expanding. They're becoming more and more numerous. They're people who become so numerous that they provide help and healing and shade for those around them. They're the ones who are willing to give up everything in order to become part of this. And again, one day, he's going to separate the rebels from the righteous. The rebels he'll cast into hell. And the righteous he will welcome into paradise forever. But what is a kingdom without a king? The whole reason Jesus talks about the kingdom all the time is to get you to think, to bring you to an action, to realize he's the king. He's standing before me. I need to do something about it. And that's what the whole book has been about so far. The whole book of Matthew is showing that Jesus isn't just king of Israel, that only Jews need to respond to. He's the king of all of heaven and earth. The Jews expected Israel to become this great nation, so powerful in the world, the Messiah would show up and pat him on the back for a job well done and, and allow them to rule over everything. They didn't realize that they were just a servant to this greater kingdom of heaven. They were supposed to be representatives pointing people to this greater kingdom that's to come. And they failed to do that. And because they failed, now the kingdom of heaven is coming and saying, repent, you did a terrible job. And now the king says, I'm going to take over representation from here on out. So Jesus starts this accounting in his own hometown It says in verse 54, he goes to the synagogue. The synagogue is the place where you went to read your Bible, where you went to be taught what God has been doing and what he wants you to do with your life. It was impossible for people at that time to have their own complete set of the Bible. You have a big collection of scrolls that you sit on your nightstand to collect dust, like we do with our own Bibles. But if you wanted to know what God wanted of you, you went to the synagogue. And you met with the rabbi and the scribes there, and he would, they would teach you, tell you all that God has for store in store for you in your life. And then Jesus comes in. He walks right in, pulls the scrolls out, and starts teaching as one with wisdom they've never seen before. They are astonished. Matthew writes, the people ask, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They've heard him teach marvelous things they've seen him perform miracles they've heard of his fame all over the region they know he's been confronting the religious rulers all over and now he's bringing it here too asserting his authority over them but something doesn't quite fit something's not quite right about this jesus guy claiming to be king yeah he's got great insights into the text and he shows apparent power and authority over everybody. But there seems to be a conflict in identity claims. Let's look at their objection in verses 55 and 56. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then does this man get all these things? The people are in the synagogue. They hear him teach. They've seen him do powerful things, and now they're conflicted. Jesus standing here claiming to be king, but that can't be. Isn't this the guy that took over his father's trade? Yeah, Joseph died a while ago, and he took over. He, he fixes farm equipment. He builds houses and barns. He's just a regular Joe, a laborer like the rest of us. He's got no education in the law, in the ways of the covenant. And then someone else says, well, yeah, now that you mention it. Hey, remember 30 years ago, that woman named Mary, she had a baby when she wasn't even married. This is the guy. God doesn't doesn't use illegitimate children like him. We don't need to listen to him, and we know his siblings. They're right here. His sisters, his brothers are over there. They're nobody special. He can't be either. He's like that quarterback, thought he was so important, too good for his hometown, and went off to pursue great things, and apparently was rejected out there, so now he's back. Maybe he can be a big fish in a small pond here. The people of Nazareth know better. They're not going to let him rule over them. He's not really a king. But the question remains. In verse 56, where did he get all these things then? They can't deny he's got all this power and this insight. Sure, we know his family, but what happened? Where does this come from? Who's behind this trick? And then Jesus begins to be more forceful about who he is and where he's going. He makes a statement then about who he is that sets him further on this trajectory to his throne, his wooden throne in the king in Jerusalem. So he resolves in verses 70, 57 and 58 to continue his royal identity. He's going to cast off all those labels of his hometown, all the identity claims they put on him, and charge forward. Let's look back at 57 and 58. They took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, "A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household." And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That first phrase there about them taking offense, that reveals what's going on here. The word offense that he Matthew uses means to be to cause somebody to sin, to lead someone to stumble. That doesn't mean he's at fault for it, but he leads them to a place where their sin can't handle it anymore. Their confusion has nothing to do with how smart they are, how connected with the people they are. And it has nothing to do with Jesus being nicer. Maybe if he, he was nicer, they would understand. Or if he was a little more careful to explain things, a little more sensitive. No, it's their own Hard, sinful hearts that keep them from seeing the beauty of the King who's right in front of them. He's right there, he's glorious, and they want nothing to do with him. Why? What's so offensive about him? He teaches about the riches of the kingdom of heaven and he offers it freely to any of you. He helps poor people. He feeds hungry people. He heals the sick and the suffering. What is so offensive about that? It's offensive when it's your own sin and your own weakness that you realize is keeping you out. Oftentimes, when we're offended by something, someone brings an offense into our life, we get really defensive or we pass the blame. We start to blame somebody else, or we point at the person who brought that offense into our life. It's their fault that that I feel this way. We're so great at shifting blame or accusing others when we feel shame and guilt. It all started way back at the beginning, didn't it? At Adam and Eve. God shows up and says, Adam, what's going on here? Adam responds, oh no, I'm I just feel under the microscope right now. I feel shame. I feel confusion. The woman, the woman, she made me do it. So he passes the blame to her. And then he's thinking more about it. You gave me the woman. The offense is your fault. You brought this into my life. You're the reason I feel so terrible. And Jesus, the people in Jesus' hometown do the same thing. When he shows up like God in the garden, what's going on here? Where are the righteous people in my kingdom? Where did they go? And they do the same thing Adam did. You, you're nobody. You can't talk to us like that. They feel incredibly uncomfortable in this moment. And instead of dealing with their own guilt and shame and fear, they just attack the messenger, question his character. But Jesus isn't taken aback. He's not surprised by this. It's not like he didn't know this would happen when he arrived. And so he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. He's not shaken by this news. It doesn't cause him to quake, wonder, what's my identity now? These people don't love me anymore. He says, nobody likes prophets. Of course you're going to say that. Prophets always show up telling you what you're doing wrong, always making you feel bad about yourself. Jesus is just in a long line of prophets Who were not welcome isaiah one prophet he was sent to preach to people who had ears they didn't work go preach to people who won't respond and jeremiah jeremiah called to tear down the idolatry of israel to go in and say look Proof of your faithfulness. All this injustice everywhere. They didn't care. They didn't want to hear it. They burned his prophecies. They were so sick of hearing it. He had zero converts. They even cast him out. They burned his prophecies. They wanted to hear nothing of him. Nobody likes to be told they're wrong. Nobody likes to be put under the microscope and have all of your weakness exposed before everybody, especially by some high and mighty, holier-than-thou, backwoods Nazarene country boy who couldn't cut it in the big city. So what does Jesus do in response? He knew this was coming. What is he going to do? He doesn't argue. We saw that before. He doesn't argue with people. He doesn't get defensive. He's not going to fight back and say, no, guys, let's start the revolution. He instead does the same thing he told his disciples to do back in chapter 10. You go to one town and they reject you, shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town. Even if it's your own hometown, even if it's the people who know you, who raised you, who are the people who shaped you, who invested in your life who know everything you've been through, make it easy for you. You have so many memories with them. But he gave them their chance. He offered them a place in the kingdom, and they rejected it. So he's moving on. And he didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He just left. It doesn't sound like much, but that is an incredible judgment when God just leaves. The king said, have my treasure. We don't want it. Fine. Have it your way. Enjoy your sin. Let it destroy you. It wasn't going to entertain them. It wasn't going to try to convince them, please, please join my kingdom. It's going to be really cool. I got a kick in worship team. It's really awesome. Huge palaces. Join me. It's going to be wonderful. He just, Moved on. He has kingdom priorities that he will not be distracted from. People who are skeptical often demand signs. They want more from him. Convince me. If God is real, if he really wants me to believe in him, he would give me a sign. He would give me some proof. Here I am. Show me, God. Huh? I'm ready. I'm ready. But Jesus won't cater to your selfish desires. Your sin would keep you from believing it anyway, right? They did that here. Even if someone were to come back from the dead, which he did, you still won't believe. Jesus will not try to impress the kingdoms of the earth. He doesn't need your approval. He came to serve the purposes of the kingdom and he is unmoved from his dedication to the kingdom, even at the cost of respect from his own hometown friends and family. But by his grace, he went to the next town, and the next town, and the next town, and he sent his apostles all over the earth, and here we are. Today he brought it because his mission kept on going. He did not sway from his identity. He completed his mission, maintaining his royal identity until he was crowned on the cross with the crown of thorns and died and put in a tomb. But in his resurrection, he defeated every other kingdom in the world and he ushers his kingdom in and says, have it today. Look, what more proof do you need? When you hear this offer, don't harden your hearts like his hometown did, demanding more signs, questioning his character. Submit to King Jesus, to his authority, and only through that submission will you then see his mighty works on display. If you don't surrender, you're going to miss out. Jesus faced opposition from the people who were closest to him, but he was unmoved by pressure to define his identity by anything but his kingdom. He was steadfast in his kingdom identity. Will you be too? What will you allow to define your own identity? You have two options. Jesus Christ and everything else. His kingdom or the kingdoms and cultures of this world. The priorities he lays out in his word or the whispers of your buddies and your friends. Like the quarterback who lost his football star identity. Anything else is going to be a failed attempt at finding lasting, satisfying, satisfying meaning in your life unless you embrace your kingdom identity in Christ. There's many things in your life that are going to be calling, trying to define your identity. Your buddies at the fire station, the nurses at the nurse's station, who are gossiping, and you just want to be respected by them. Or your family, who thinks maybe you've gone a little too far with this religious thing. Your homosexual desires in a society who says, just embrace them. Come on, it's okay. There's freedom there. That drive inside of you that says I'm going to be known as a smart, successful, confident, independent person. Those who tell you because of your skin color, your ethnicity, you should probably behave this way or that, For Satan will attack you. He'll bring doubts into your mind, trying to label you with your weakness and your brokenness. You're such an anxious wreck. You will never amount to nothing. Oh, in your illness, in your suffering, your disability, you're not useful to God. Your addiction, that that defines you. That's who you are. When these things call in your life, what are you going to do? How will you avoid letting them define you? How are you going to fight back? Will you let them continue to have a voice, or are you going to be like Christ? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness let him define you embrace your kingdom identity in Christ say no to those things and walk away walk to Jesus embrace your kingdom identity in Christ what does that look like for us it means broadly letting the word of God have primary voice in your life in shaping you the word of God open not collecting dust on your nightstand, but open in your hands, reading it the word of God as you dive into worship together, Sunday school, Bible studies, community groups, sitting down one-on-one with your brothers and sisters, opening the word, help me, help me redefine my life by Christ and his kingdom. Being vulnerable to your brothers and sisters in Christ, seeking guidance from your pastors, When those old voices call back, you're just this guy. Come on back. Come hang out with us. Just give in one more time. You tell them off with the word of God and you run to the people that will support you. When your life is about the kingdom, you will walk away just like Jesus did. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you will walk away because he wants your life to be a testimony of how amazing his treasures are how amazing his promises are, how faithful he is. If you're being shaped by his word and his people, all of your old friends and your neighbors and your family, your coworkers, they're going to be confused. I know this guy, but where does he get all this stuff? When you are bringing his kingdom presence among non-believers, they're not going to understand why you're so consumed with this Jesus and his silly band of followers. Look at them. They're a bunch of fools. It's the only fools I want to spend my life with. Maybe you're sitting here today kind of on the fence. You know you're being pulled back and forth. I should be at church more. I should be with those people more. But on the other side, these people are pulling me this way. But I love being with these guys, too. I want to be around them. It's so much fun. You might be wondering, do I need to be that committed? Really? That committed? I hear you, Pastor Adam, but what you're saying kind of sounds like a cult. You want me to mold my entire life around Christ and his church? Yes! Please hear that. Jesus said so in so many ways. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Put your hands to the plow and don't look back. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. The world will know you love Jesus by your love for the church. Your embrace of a kingdom identity in Christ is your primary witness to the world of his great worthiness, of his faithfulness to his promises, of your hope in all the joy he has set before you, the treasures of his kingdom, more than anything in this world. If you think about it, we're all in a cult of some kind. Cult is the root word of culture. Culture is the beliefs, the behaviors that shape who you are and what you do. That's what we're talking about here today. Which cultures will you let influence you? America is full of cults. Cult of self, cult of political affiliation, cult of sports, cults of careers. There's the weird cults, too, the ones that have weird rituals and they wear holy underwear and drink Kool-Aid. But those are only weird because they're so uncommon. The common ones aren't any more righteous or holy, pleasing to God. Which cultures are you going to let shape your identity? Christ is calling you today to surrender it all to him, your entire identity. You can't have both. You can't have one foot in the kingdom and another Over here in this other culture, you must have complete allegiance to Christ and his kingdom priorities. If you continue to find your hope, shape your identity, put your trust in anything else, when it's too late, he's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Revelation says he will spit you out of his mouth. This text says he will pass you by. He'll go to the next person, the next village. Don't let it be said of your life. He didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The good news, friends, is that obtaining this identity and all of its blessings costs you absolutely nothing. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't sell everything and say, here, Jesus, can I come in now? Christ earned it for you in His perfect life. His wrath against sin-bearing death In his victorious resurrection, all you need to do when he stands before you to get rid of that guilt and the shame and the fear that you have is hand it back to him and say, please take it. It's all yours. I surrender it all to you. But paradoxically, the difficult news of this is that it does cost you everything. You cannot grasp on to this old life while reaching for him. You need to let go. You can't continue to be known by all these previous relationships. You can only be known by him. Jesus speaks hyperbolically. You must sell everything to obtain this field. You must hate your father and mother and brother and sister. If you want eternal life, you must lose this one. But I promise you, if you embrace the kingdom identity in Christ, One day, the return on investment will be totally worth it. Let's pray. God, shape us to be those people willing to give it all. I pray that right now you would be showing us, showing us what we need to let go of and trust you. That we need to stop blaming people and start trusting you. Stop accusing you and being frustrated with you for bringing things into our life that make us hurt. And just trust you. Help us to see the beauty of your kingdom. Sell us out more to your kingdom priorities. Make us bold by your spirit to proclaim your truth and the worthiness and the joy in your kingdom. In his joy, he sold everything. God, make us the happiest people on the planet through the worst situations that you would receive the glory, that people would look at us and say, who are they? Why? Where did they get this stuff? And may you step in and display your glory, your beauty, in such mighty ways that we can do nothing but gaze upon you and worship you and thank you and praise you. Lead us to that now. Lift our hearts and our eyes to give you all the praise. Amen.